0: VOC Breakfast, weekdays 6.30 to 9 a.m. Only on the Voice of the Cape.
1: Welcome to it. This is Breakfast on 91.3 FM and uh, of course to nine nine one three nine one three. if you want to engage with us. Uh, preferably on uh, WhatsApp of course and um, uh, to post it through on, uh, as voice notes. Uh, we'd like to prioritize that. We're going to tell you a little bit more later about that as well. So during the second wave, we've been focusing a lot on healthcare workers, Sabira so at hospitals, particularly mm-hmm. um, GP surgeries and all that, you know. We're really stretched right now, but we haven't really heard from GPs in particular we know what it always looked like you know when we look at the queues in the roads etc but they are really the first port of call for many patients in the community and this morning we have healthcare practitioner Dr. Salim Parker as well as uh, he is, is a member of the Islamic Medical Association as well as Dr. Yasmin Bray who runs a private practice in Athlone I'm going to start off with Dr. Salim um, uh, just to sort of you know, um, uh, talk to us first and before we move along to Dr. Yasmin Moukadeem as well. Uh, Dr. Salim, assalamu alaikum and shukran so much uh, for joining us on Breakfast 9 to 1.3 FM. If we were to look at, you know, on average, how many COVID-19 cases are you guys diagnosing every day?
2: Assalamu warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Um, and shukran for the opportunity again to speak on your uh, radio station. I'm um, just oh, to give pleasure. you an indication as how uh, my morning started, I got here at 7 phone that patient up who uh, I got the result late last night, who's positive. His father is diabetic, this patient is 20, uh, 28, his father's diabetic and he just said oh, my father started coughing now, so clearly he has to go for a test as well. The second patient I tried to phone, uh, also, I also got a result for, um, that patient is not answering her phone, her dad is epileptic, I have no idea what, if he has any symptoms at the moment, so we'll have to get back to them. Then I've got two patients on a ventilator. Um, obviously, they've been looked after by specialists. And the one is a 42-year-old um, who runs marathons and is now in life support. Um, obviously, the patients ask me as the GP to follow up on them. I've got mm-hmm. a few patients on high-flow oxygen. And I don't have yesterday's figures, but on Tuesday, we sent 18 patients for private testing In other words, these are people who are either on Medicaid or can afford to pay for it. 13 of them were positive. So that is a significant percentage. We also sent six patients to the uh, state hospitals. These are people who can't afford private ones. And then there were 10 people. I just had a look at the figures. This is now just on Tuesday. Ten people who are young, in other words, they, they, uh, they're less than 45, but they don't have comorbidities. They can't afford private testing, even though they have symptoms. So we had to ask them to isolate. Um, the state won't test them because the criteria for the state at the moment is that you must be 45 years or older or have comorbidities at any age. So, these, so we're looking at 30 plus most likely 6 for one particular day that were positive, and another 10 who are most likely positive, but we just asked to, so we're looking at over 30 patients in one day.
0: Wow. Now, of course, also welcoming into the conversation this morning, Dr. Yasmin Mukadam-Bray, a GP in Athlone. Um, Dr. Bray, as good morning. Thank you for joining us. Wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. so much for having me on the radio station. Only a pleasure, Doc. Now, we've just heard what Dr. Parker has mentioned. You know, I presume your day roundabouts mirrors that of which Dr. Salim Parker has mentioned. Perhaps sharing with us, what is your general day like now over the time of COVID?
3: Look, Sabira, um, you know, it's, it's exactly what um, Dr. Parker is saying. Um, very much, I think, for all of the GPs in Cape Town at the moment, we're all in the same boat. Um, I actually closed my practice for my usual uh, sort of December holiday on the 24th of December, but this has been uncanny. Um, there's been absolutely no hol- holiday since we actually closed. And since I've been um, at home, I've actually been on my phone all the time, constantly busy with patients um, in in uh, sort of requiring tests to be done, uh, requiring uh, follow-ups. So once you've diagnosed the patient with COVID-19, it's not just a matter of saying, yeah, you go take your vitamins and um, isolate. It's a matter of actually supporting that patient for the, for the whole uh, sort of uh, process of the journey. So it's been extremely draining emotionally and physically. Um, and yes, we are seeing um, huge Numbers of cases um, and, and and yeah I think all the GPS are actually very, very burnt out at this moment in time with the amount of of cases that we are having to manage, but also just to manage the the emotional side of um, of this uh, pandemic you know once patients have been diagnosed, you need to support them, and uh, it really takes a lot out of one.
0: Now, of course, uh, Dr. Parker, you know, we've also heard a lot of reports, uh, you know, of people dying before they get to hospital. And this is simply because, you know, they say the ambulances, you know, don't respond in time or there's just no beds in terms of the capacity. Um, and perhaps, you know, after our headlines at 7.30, we can get into that aspect as well. Um, we are going to be breaking now for our headlines at the bottom of the hour. We continue the conversation with Dr. Salim Parker as well as Dr. Yasmin Mukadambre when we return.
1: Welcome back to Breakfast on 91.3 FM Your voice in the morning We're with you all the way through until 9 o'clock Now we are in discussion with Dr. Selim Parker As well as Dr. Yasmin Bray We're looking and we're talking about You know, them sharing the experiences As, uh, as COVID-19 spikes I mean, over the last 24 hours We um, saw the figures going up To just over 17,000 Now, um, just before the break uh, Dr. Selim Parker, you know we, we we heard many reports obviously, Of people dying even before they get to hospital. Like Sabra uh, mentioned you know this is simply because his uh, the, the ambulance for example cannot or doesn't respond in time or there's just no bed capacity is this the case in your opinion let's, uh,
2: let's use two uh, examples from our particular practice the one was a gentleman who needed his, uh, his diabetic he needed admission to hospital um, because of the suburb he lives in we uh, asked him to go to one of the northern suburb hospitals He sat there for a few hours. There was absolutely no beds available at any of the private hospitals at that stage. But four hours later, he was told, and this was in Blauberg. He was in Blauberg Hospital. Um, He was told that there's one bed available in Cape Town. So the ambulance transported him there. Um, I've tried on occasions at Tigerberg Hospital, phoning uh, the registrar on call. He says, there's no beds, but we'll have to make a plan. And then we send the patients there. So yes, there is. Absolutely, absolutely a shortage of beds throughout. Giving you an example, um, of this 42-year-old uh, um, marathon runner that I was referring to happens to be my cousin as well. He's the best friend with a pulmonologist at one of the most prominent um, private hospitals. Mm. When he started getting short of breath, the pulmonologist who runs the ICU at this particular hospital couldn't find a bed for him for a few hours and tried phoning around at other hospitals to get him in. Wow. So there is a shortage of beds. It's going to get worse. Yesterday we had close to 4,000 um, newly diagnosed cases in the Western Cape. About 10% of them in a week or so is going to need hospital admission we know about 10% of uh, the of uh, diagnosed people do need hospitalization. So the situation is going to get worse currently unless people take responsibility. I mean, poor Dr. Yasmin uh um, Bray, I know uh, over the holidays he had to get into a, he has, uh, one of his um, suits to go and examine the patient. I mean, this, you know, because he was becoming quite sick and short of breath and she had to have him admitted to hospital. And this is really it's, uh, like she said, it's Physically taxing, but also emotionally draining because we don't know what the disease is going to do to any one particular patient. The older patient might just survive without any symptoms, a younger one. We've had in our practice, for example, a 27-year-old young lady who's got now destructive lung disease because of COVID. We cannot at this moment predict who's going to get severe disease or who's not going to get
0: Mm. Now, Dr. Bray, you know, over the past few weeks, I must admit, I've seen an increasing number in terms of, you know, requests and questions about oxygen tanks for home use. I'm talking on social media, in WhatsApp groups where family members and friends are asking, you know, does anyone have access to an oxygen tank? Where can I get an oxygen tank from? Um, Is there a challenge in, you know, sourcing oxygen for home use? Um, Sabira,
3: absolutely um, just as an example uh, two nights ago I had a patient um, WhatsApp me at about um, half past nine in the evening uh, with a reading on this pulse oximeter so we give these patients these pulse oximeter machines to measure the oxygen levels and her husband had a level of 80% um, so at 80% you know the normal level is between 95 and 100% um, but at the moment because of the strain with beds we are not really supposed to re patients if they are below uh, I mean above 90 percent you know Um, so so basically you're sitting with a patient with 80 percent who definitely needs oxygen a lack of oxygen means a lack of oxygen to all of your core um, bodily functioning so your heart can be affected your brain can be affected your kidneys will be affected eventually right it can absolutely um, cause for your ultimate death so I I'm desperate trying to, get it to convince her husband to go to hospital. She's got her in-laws on the line saying to her, don't take him to hospital. If he's going to get to hospital, he's going to die there. So there's all of that drama that you mm. need to manage. So um, we we try and um, phone the ambulance. The ambulance um, only responds six hours later to this patient. Um, at that time, alhamdulillah, with all the dua and with all the proding and the exercises and everything, the levels came up to above 90 um, and the ambulance basically told her, the paramedics told her don't take your um, your, your husband to the district hospital, there's no beds um, he's going to be, the are patients lying on stretches on the floor um, so he's not going to be seen Try and get an oxygen tank so now the next step is to try and find that oxygen tank, uh, we all get on our phones and we're trying to phone our um, various suppliers and I'm phoning and, patient, uh, and the suppliers are just saying, doc we are out of stock, we are saturated the hospitals are using all our oxygen We don't have in the oxygen to refill Tanks, we don't have tanks to give Out to patients, if you have a tank You can maybe try and source Some oxygen to refill it, but trying to get the tank is, is, is almost uh, it's A really precious and rare Commodity at the moment, so that's a Huge problem um, Also the cost, you know, of buying tanks Are out of range for most patients Who may need one um, And then also administering at home is another Issue, because you can't just go and switch it on and and know what you're doing. It needs to be guided by a medical practitioner to make sure that you use it in a safe manner. So the access to oxygen for home care is a problem yes and then if you do get oxygen to be able to manage that oxygen is also important. So you need the help of a, a medical practitioner in order to guide you with that. Um, so you know, I think the main issue here, the point is, is that we must try and prevent getting COVID, <laughs> if I could mm. put it that way. <laughs> you know, the more people that are healthy, need to try and actually abide by the rules to prevent themselves and their families from getting this virus. The other thing to remember is, Sabira, is is that a lot a lot of people um, feel fine within the first five days of getting the infection, and what I've noticed now is that by day seven, day eight, patients are crashing, and that is the time where the the Things uh, become uh, sort of deprived of oxygen. There's a lot of mucus in the airways. They stop breathing. So you almost think that, okay, I'm better. And a lot of patients are actually leaving their homes and de-isolating at that stage, feeling that they're okay and they're not contagious anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's when they're crashing. And that is the danger out there because that's, that's the most critical time actually in this virus.
1: Yeah, so, no, that makes absolute yeah. sense. In fact, I want to go for some commercials quickly, but Dr. Salim, I sure. uh, wanted you to think about this, you know, I wanted you to touch on, you know, the differences between this variant and the previous one. Do we see the differences? Is it more common? And what are those differences? Think about that quickly for a sec. I want to go for some commercials. Then on the other side, we'll get into that part of the discussion. We welcome your comments on 0829-913-913. Please send us your voice notes as opposed to typing it out. It's just going to go a little more quicker. We'll continue this discussion right after this.
3: The Voice of the Cape 91.3 FM Stereo.
1: Get your day started right.
0: This is VLC Breakfast with Golan Fakir and Sabiru Shagesso. Only on The Voice of the Cape.
1: Welcome back to Breakfast on 91.3 FM. We're in discussion with Dr. Salim Parker as well as Dr. Yasmin Mukadam bray We're talking and they're sharing basically the experiences of being in the front line um, with COVID-19 as the numbers are increasing. Dr. Salim, just before the break, you know, um, we were to, I, I wanted you to think about this. If we were to look at the differences between this variant and the previous one, are there significant differences and are you seeing those? Yeah. Um, firstly, I just want
2: to re-emphasize what Dr. Bray said earlier about the thing. Remember, when we talk of people having to isolate for 10 days, that is purely whether they can infect others or not. It's got nothing to do with how, uh, how sick they are or how sick they are not. Uh, so the cause of the disease is so yeah. purely for economic reasons, for, um, so that people don't affect and, and infect other people. They can, however, from day 7 onwards they can, like uh, Dr. Bray said, crash, and that is the dangerous part where the oxygen levels drop. That can happen any time from day five upwards to two weeks later, so even after they de-isolate. Just wanted to uh, clarify that. So when it comes to the second wave, this variant that we uh, see, there's no studies out yet, but from the ground point of view, normally this is uh, seen first, we're definitely seeing in, uh, firstly, that we know that from a clinical point of view, there's more viruses in those who are infected. So, when the viral load is higher, what that implies is that you can exhale more at any one time. Mm-hmm. And what we're clearly seeing is that there's more people being infected, it's spreading faster, and this is borne out by the numbers. For example, where the most number of cases in the first wave in Cape Town, we were seeing up to 2,000. Here, on a couple of days, we've seen 4,000 people getting infected on any given day. Yesterday, again, was close to 4,000 people being infected. We're also seeing younger people, like I mentioned earlier, being infected and also more severely being infected. I mentioned the 20 odd year old with uh, destructive lung disease, the 42 year old who's in life support, very fit person. Um, so, yes, um, it's definitely different, def- definitely spreading faster. Definitely affecting younger people compared to, uh, remember, we've got kids under 10 who are positive and involved in our practice. And I'm pretty certain that Bay will uh, iterate that as well. Wow.
0: Dr. just in terms of what Doc has mentioned and to add, you know, are the respiratory symptoms manifesting earlier and are they more severe? And another question has come in on our WhatsApp line this morning. Also, you know, wanting to know in terms of when you do, um, you know, find yourself um, in the early stages of these symptoms, you know, does it help to start using a nebulizer then? And would that sort of, you know, um, assist in you not moving over to needing, you know, a full on oxygen tank perhaps?
3: Okay. So so definitely I have to re- uh, re- reiterate what um, Salim is saying that um, we are seeing a more aggressive uh, form of the virus this time around and it seems that people are getting sicker um, and younger people as well as more healthy people. I have um, a very close family member who is actually a healthcare worker himself who works at Tigerberg Hospital and he's currently been hospitalized at Constantinople Medical um, with, uh, with um, uh, quite bad symptoms um, and, and we would have never expected him to end up needing an admission because he is so healthy so yes the uh, it's very difficult to predict who's actually going to end up in hospital and who's going to need tertiary um and 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 that is definitely because of this new strain the b- b- baby being more aggressive uh, when it comes to uh, the respiratory symptoms um it is uh using a nebulizer you know from the beginning of of this virus we've been sort of cautioned against using a nebulizer um as those uh, uh, what happens with the nebulizer is that, that viral particles can disperse into the atmosphere and then it can actually become um, a sort of it can float around in the atmosphere and, uh, and be a risk for other people. So if people are using nebulizers, it should be done in an open air space um, where it, uh, is, uh, it's not going to create a risk for anybody else. Whether it's going to help uh, with regards to preventing oxygen um, uh, need, um, I don't think that it's really made uh, or shown um, any sort of significant um, improvement. What's really um, helped a lot is to start the breathing exercises. Um, there's quite a bit of it going around on um, WhatsApp by registered uh, physiotherapists who have put documents together with regards to the deep breathing exercises um, that can actually help improve the lung capacity and to help to take the mucus plugs off the lungs um, and that tends to help a bit. Also things like steaming uh, inhalations um, with hot water and eucalyptus those things have been a little bit better than actual nebulizer. Also using a nebulizer um, uh, putting solution in it um, uh, which we usually use for asthma and that can actually worsen uh, the situation if it's not done in the correct manner with the proper indication so if it is used it needs to be guided by a medical practitioner and I wouldn't suggest that patients just go out and buy a nebulizer it's just because they are covid positive it needs definitely needs to be done um and guided by a
1: doctor. Mm. Now doctor Salim, you know one of the other things also is that a lot of people don't know you know whether it is you know just normal flu and cold symptoms and whether or not it is covid-19 um you know symptoms as GPs you know how are you also assisting them in, in identifying you know what are flu and cold symptoms versus the covid-19 symptoms? I
2: don't know it's uh uh, quite a difficult situation because in this time of the year we see quite a lot of sinuses um, mm-hmm. and upper respiratory tract infections. We don't mm-hmm. see influenza this time of the year. and yes. In fact, this year, uh, South Africa didn't have an influenza season at all. What we find uh, quite indicative is firstly those who have a uh, high temperature with the flu symptoms. But uh, in younger people, um, a significant percentage of them complain of anosmia, which is um, altered uh, smell. Altered, uh, or lack of uh, smell completely, and another word we use this this gusia. Um, I like uh, um, banding it about because it's such a difficult word to uh, to remember. And that is altered <laughs> taste or complete lack of taste. Uh, and the, and the younger ones tend to uh, complain of this quite significantly. But in our practice, and I'm not uh, I'm certain whether it's found generally, if a temperature is raised and they've com- and they've got flu like symptoms the chances of it being uh, COVID is significantly higher than that without the temperature and just nasal congestion. We're also seeing people with diarrhea presenting with fever and a bit of nasal congestion. So those are the uh, factors that we look at. One other thing is that we often find that the temperature screening done uh, at our doors is significantly Mm. uh, different to what we actually find in our rooms. I mean, we use the one that... that uh, that we will take the measurement of the temperature on the eardrum. and if that is high, it's uh, a flu like symptoms. Chances are that it's COVID 19. The only problem with the uh, with the screening uh, um, thermometer is that. It can vary from people having temperatures of 25 degrees, which means you did, or 50 mm-hmm. degrees, which means that you also did. Uh, so we don't <laughs> put a lot of attention to that. I think uh, that is a waste of time. The temperature has to be done with a proper thermometer in
0: the doctor's room. Mm. Mm. now dr salim just on another note and still with regards to symptoms i was following an interesting thread on twitter yesterday in terms of the 501.v2 you know many are saying um at the time of them contracting it they had no symptoms apart from a runny tummy um you know have you have you sort of had the same um observations come through
2: Yes, but when we actually do take the temperatures, it is uh, slightly raised. Is okay. The two that I sent yesterday, mm-hmm. um, that I'm trying to get hold of um, uh, this morning, uh, they both had, um, you know, their they, uh, presenting uh, symptoms was a runny tummy, but when I checked the temperature, it was up. And on mm-hmm. actually further inquiring, um, they had blocked noses, they had runny noses, but they attributed that to. Uh, uh, you know, to the seasonal allergies that they have, but if you specifically ask them, then they actually do uh, indicate that they have that. A lot of them have throat irritation, um, not so bad that they would normally present to a doctor. It's more that they are uh, cautious and uh, that they are actually aware of the presenting symptoms that they come for. That. Now, I'm pretty certain my colleagues um, are finding similar presenting symptoms.
0: Also, um, Dr. Yasmin, you know, how do perhaps, you know, GPs protect, you know, their surgeries? You mentioned, you know, you are off, but you're still sort of consulting. Um, but, you know, when you were in your rooms, you know, so that non-COVID patients, you know, do not, do not contract the virus. And then again, how, you know, how is the current caseload impacting on services for non-COVID patients? I do know that you mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation that you've sort of now steered your practice and service towards, you know, the COVID patients. So how is that all? working out. Cool. Sure. So, so obviously, um,
3: a lot of thought and processes needed to take place at the beginning of the pandemic with regards to the way we operate. And I think, Alhamdulillah, it's actually, uh, you know, made us much more aware with regards to um, infection spread and how we manage things better. So, you know, on a normal day, um, myself and my staff would be in full PPE, which would mean um, a, a head-to-toe overalls, um, a mask, and it needs to be a proper PN95 mask. Um, plus a visor um and then um you know um my staff would also in the front be be in the same kit and then we've put up prospect screens between ourselves and the patients to try and protect mm. and, um, our staff as well um obviously these things also come with challenges because it's very uncomfortable sometimes to have to work with a mask and a visor, especially if you're having to do surgical procedures it becomes Quite a nightmare to try and suture somebody when you have all of this equipment on, but this is what we're having to do and we have to stay in that. That also poses quite some uh, logistical issues. So trying to get to the loo or having something to eat in between becomes mm-hmm. almost impossible because you're sitting in this full kit all the time and even answering your phone because you don't want to be in contact with the COVID patient and then uh, take a call. Um, so those are things that, that really, you know, people don't realize, um, you know, that can actually affect the way you operate. Then also what we've done with our patients is is that we've limited our practice to um, a maximum of of four or five people per uh, session in in, uh, sort of in one given time in our reception area. So we've taken away all the chairs. So we only have about four chairs in the waiting room. The rest of the patients have to wait in the cars. And then we've got a WhatsApp server. So once uh, their time comes up, they will then be able to come into the rooms. In order to try and protect um, the patients that are sitting there um, from patients that could be infected. The other thing that I've done is that um, everybody gets assigned a chair. So once you get into my practice, you will sit on that chair. And when you come to see me, you will bring that chair with you. And once you leave, then I sanitize the entire chair down and then circulate it back into the room only once it's sanitized. So it's a lot of PT, a lot of things that Mm. we have to do. But at least in that way, we try and protect the patients that are coming in. I also try and um, tell patients that are having any flu-like symptoms, please wait in your car. We will call you. Don't just right. come in and sit and cough, because there might be elderly patients with other comorbidities mm. that might be sitting in the practice and that might be at risk. And this is a really a huge issue. Uh, it really breaks my heart to see what's happening to the rest of our patients. I mean, uh, the day before I closed, I saw a lady in her 60s who had a huge tumor. She came in thinking she's got an abscess. And I just had one look at her, and I could t- I could immediately see that it looks like um, this looks like a massive malignancy. Yeah. and I gave her a letter in order to go to Croatia Hospital um, for a diagnosis. But given that it's Christmas and that it's COVID, I, in my heart, knew that she's going to get there. And she's probably not going to get any investigations done at the moment. She's not going yeah. to get any care or treatment for that cancer that is probably already spread up maybe The soonest would probably be around About February, if she's lucky And, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of almost left me in tears Because I felt that, you know This patient is really sick and she needs Care urgently, care, yeah. but I know that when I'm going to send it to Hurucski Hospital, unfortunately, it's not that they don't want to help, but it's just that they only have the facility, the capacity mm-hmm. to be able to sort out patients with other um, um, uh, uh, conditions other than COVID. So your diabetics, your your hypertensives, your patients that's coming in with strokes—they are being compromised. Their health is being compromised at the moment because of the load right. in the hospital. So um, but, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is a this really, really, so really huge I- problem.
1: Yeah, I can just imagine. Um, time is uh, not playing with us this morning. Okay. <laughs> and, I, mean, we, I mean, we've been t- doing this now from, what, 20 past 7 already. And there's so many other questions. And I can mm-hmm. imagine, like even on the WhatsApp line, how uh, things are looking there. But I want to give the last 30 seconds to Dr. Salim uh, Parker, you know, just some advice. You know, If you have mild symptoms, how best can you treat those symptoms, um, you know, at home before even getting into a lab or to a doctor, etc.? Um, just very quickly, Doc.
2: Yeah, well, firstly, I think it's important to have a diagnosis. You know, the, uh, what we find is that people who are told to go home because they might have COVID. They tend to feel better after a day. So remember, yeah. 90% of people will feel over the day or two. And because they assume that, yeah, they were told go isolate for 10 days, they're not going to do that. So it is anyone who can afford it. And, and yeah, I actually appeal to the state as well that we've got to increase testing. Once people have a diagnosis and know they have COVID, whether they're feeling well or not, didn't they feel more responsible to actually um, isolate themselves? So I would yes. urge anyone who's got symptoms to actually get tested first of all. Um, and here it's got to be a common—you know, the state has to play its role in there. That's the first thing. The second one is that we—we've you know, got 58,000 people currently um, infected in the Western Cape. That, uh, which means that there's at least ten times that many people who are actually walking around with the disease who are, the, uh they're asymptomatic. So. People they need to isolate. At this moment, the healthcare workers who were supposed to be frontline, we're basically sitting with mops because a tap is leaking. The community itself has to turn that tap off. The owners mm-hmm. have shifted from the healthcare workers who are really just um, stretched and uh, healthcare facilities which are overburdened. We, 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 we're mopping a tap that is leaking and that is mm-hmm. in the hands of the community. Everyone's gotta take responsibility at the moment. Mm. So any symptoms if you can't
1: get tested, stay at home for ten days. On. Definitely. At least yeah. Shukran, Dr. Sanim Apaka, I, I am a member as well as Dr. Yasminukad Dembra. I appreciate both of your times and all of the very best inshallah to you and your teams.